Hi, I'm Ollie Neal, and I'm the host of the Equip Project podcast. The Equip Project is designed to help young people engage with the Christian faith in a thoughtful and reasonable way. Our goal is to help provide clarity and understanding as we seek to tackle many of the cultural and intellectual challenges to Christianity. In this episode, we'll think about the Christian doctrine of the Trinity, that God is three in one. It's great to welcome Jim Crooks back with us. Welcome, Jim. Uh, Thank you, Ollie. It's good to be back with you. Jim, let's start this conversation by reading a quote from Matthew's Gospel and chapter 28. We'll start reading at verse 16, and it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, in this passage, Jesus introduces us to the threefold name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the strange thing is that he says we are not to be baptized into the names of God, but into the name, singular. So right at the outset, we're confronted by this seeming contradiction. How can three be one? And how many gods does does Christianity actually believe in? Well, the New Testament sets out three uh, important truths about God. They're like three jigsaw pieces. And the first is that the Bible teaches that there is only one God. But at the same time, secondly, the Bible teaches clearly that there are three persons who are recognized as God. And then the third piece is that those three persons are distinct from each other. The relationships between them are eternal, they never changed, and they never will. So if I followed you correctly, you've already made three big claims about God. So, so let's go through each one of them a little bit more slowly, if that's okay, Jim. Sure. So first day I said there is one God. In the Old Testament, God's people had to live among pagan nations who believed in a variety of nature gods. But arising out of Hebrew culture comes this great truth we know as monotheism. So Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That verse was Israel's creed. And all the prophets uh, reinforced the central message that there is only one God. So Isaiah says in chapter 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. And the New Testament doesn't undermine that first truth in any way. In fact, the Lord Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 when he's asked a question. He regarded his Father in heaven as the one true God. So did his apostles. The apostle James says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Okay, so the Bible teaches that there is one God. So then, who are these three persons? How does that work? Yes, as as you read through the New Testament, the second great scriptural truth about God's inner life emerges. Three persons, known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are recognized as God. Now, the really interesting thing is that the early church, I mean, remember, packed full of fierce monotheists, had no problem at all with Trinitarian teaching. The idea that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit should be recognized as divine entered into the early church without struggle. And that's really interesting. So let's think about John's Gospel. The Father is repeatedly referred to as God. Chapter 17, he's called the one true God. But the New Testament also ascribes deity to Jesus Christ. John's Gospel again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We we always hear those words at Christmas, don't we? Now in the original language, the emphasis for that last clause is placed on the last word, and the Word was God. A few verses later, he's referred to as God's only son. Now, it's interesting. At the start of the Old Testament, 
God reveals himself to Moses as the constant, eternal I am. And at the start of the New Testament, Jesus Christ takes that same title upon himself. Before Abraham was, I am, he says. Uh, When Paul is writing to Titus, he says he's looking forward for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Peter also refers to Jesus Christ as our God and Saviour. The writer to the Hebrews addresses words which the Father addresses to the Son. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So that's the Father and the Son. But what about the Holy Spirit? Well, the Holy Spirit also asserts that he is God. I should say first that the Bible never treats the Holy Spirit as an it. God's Holy Spirit is never to be thought of as a, like a, an impersonal force. He's personal. He has intellect and emotions. He teaches and guides and commands. He can be resisted and lied to and uh, he can be grieved. But the Bible's also crystal clear in ascribing deity to the Holy Spirit. So in Acts 5, there's this man called Ananias. And he's accused by Peter of lying to the Holy Spirit. And the apostle says, you haven't lied to men, but to God. Then there's 1 Corinthians. The term temple of the Holy Spirit and the term temple of God are synonymous. So anyway, I'll probably talk too long about that. So in summary, the Bible um, shows us three persons who all possess the attributes of God, all three do the work of God, and all three receive the honor that only God can receive. So all three are placed on an equal footing. I mean, you started this conversation off, Ollie, by quoting the Great Commission. We are commanded to baptize believers in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The New Testament is littered with threefold formulas like that. Think of the benediction we often pronounce at the end of a church service. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon you. Or Ephesians uh, talks of uh, one Spirit, one Lord, one God and Father over all. You answered my first question by saying that in Christian thought there is one God. Then you said that three persons are recognized as God. But you also said that those three persons are distinct from each other. I just want to dig a little bit deeper on what you mean by that term distinct. What are you getting at when you say distinct? Well, the distinctions between the members of the Trinity are found in the way that they are related to each other. So the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. The Spirit is not the Father, and he's not the Son. Um, So when I mean distinct, I mean uh, they are in relationship with each other. So in John 17, the Lord Jesus recalls the love that he and the Father shared in eternity past, before the world began. Uh, So in his pre-incarnate days, the eternal Son of God loved his Father. Two persons, two distinct persons in relationship. Now, probably the best way to explain distinction is to look at some of the heresies where this, this uh, sort of started to go wrong. So around about the 4th century, some people tried to explain the Trinity by talking about the substance we call water. Okay? So, is the triune God like H2O, uh, a single substance that exists in three different modes called ice, water, and steam? Um, Mike Reeve uh, has a lovely little book called uh, The Good God. We might talk about that at the end. And he, he, he asks this question. He says, does the father start off all icy until you warm him up and he turns into the watery sun who then vaporizes and becomes the steamy spirit? Uh, and the technical term for this heresy is a thing called modalism. Now, one popular version of modalism is that God used to feel all fatherly in the Old Testament. Then he tried adopting a more sunny disposition for 33 years. And he's since decided to become more spiritual. Okay, so modalism obliterates distinctiveness. It reduces the Trinity to a series of moods that God has. Okay, and in contrast then, 
the consistent witness of Scripture is that these three persons of the Godhead are distinct, and they always have been, and they always will. Each of your big assertions about the Bible's view of God might make sense on their own, but how do you fit them together? How can those three pieces make a coherent jigsaw? In other words, how can three be one, and how can one be three? Okay, I'm going to give two answers um, to this question. The first is that Christians say that God is one being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not three separate beings. They are persons. So think of it this way. Christians say that the one being, God, has internal structure, if you like. Now, by that phrase, I don't mean that God is composed of parts. Rather, we say that the single divine nature, by its nature, is tri-personal. Those persons have been revealed to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the key question here is, what is a person? And a person in this context can be thought of as a a distinct centre of knowledge, will, love, and action. I I think Scripture would even lend support to the view of each divine person as a centre of consciousness. Now, that's a hard concept for us to grasp because we are what you might call monopersonal beings. Uh, I've just made that term up, but what I mean is I am one being and I'm also one person. I only have one centre of consciousness within my being. But God is tripersonal. Within the divine being, we find three persons known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, there's a big risk if I stop there, because I might have left you with the impression that these three persons are autonomous individuals. I am most certainly not saying that the Trinity is a, a family of three individuals who coexist together. I'm not saying the Trinity is like a, a trio of jazz musicians, because in, in a jazz trio, one member of the band can leave and go solo. But that, of course, would be impossible for the persons within the Trinity. The Father is the Father only because of his relationship with the Son. The Son is the Son only because of his relationship with the Father. And the Spirit is the Spirit only because he's the Spirit of the Father and the Spirit of the Son. So that's the first answer. Uh, uh, And it leads actually to the second main point about the Trinity. Yes, it's true that the three and the one operate at different levels. So the oneness of God is a discussion about the divine being. But we must quickly add that the oneness of God also operates at the level of persons. But here the oneness is the oneness of unity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are inseparable. They are distinct, but inseparable. They live in such profound unity with each other that it can really only be described as a mutual indwelling. Each, if you like, is translucent to the other, fully known and fully loved. So Jesus can say, I and the Father are one. And that is the oneness of unity between two distinct persons. So when you put that together, I think those who say that the doctrine of the Trinity uh, is self-contradictory are wrong. Within one being, we find internal distinctives. Uh, Now, if you compare that with the God of Islam, the God of Islam is monolithic. He's a lone, solitary ego. But the God of the Bible is tri-personal. And then when we look at God's inner life, we see three persons living in such complete unity and harmony that they mutually indwell the other. So, to summarize all that, the oneness of God exists in his being and in the unity of his persons. How would you counter the argument that the Trinity isn't all that important? Um, Maybe some Christians get caught up with the idea that it's very abstract and, and too complicated. Why does it actually matter? I think it matters for two practical reasons both of which have profound pastoral significance. The first is it will change how you come to know God. And then secondly, it will change how you talk to God. 
So let's ask the question, how do you get to know God? Uh, about 18 months ago, uh, I asked that question to a young Muslim. We were sitting uh, in the Starbucks on Botanic Avenue uh, about a stone's throw from where we're now sitting. Uh, and earlier on in the conversation, he told me that he prayed regularly to Allah. Uh, he did his best to serve as God. Um, so on the surface of the conversation, he was talking in a way that a Christian believer would talk. But I couldn't rid myself of the suspicion that he didn't know God personally. Because for him, Allah was so transcendent, so pure in his perfection, that he was almost impersonal. And not long after that, just days after that, a Christian student asked to speak with me. I have known her since she was a child, and she was in real emotional distress. I love Jesus, she told me, but I don't love God. And the more she talked, the more similarity I saw between her conception of God and the Islamic conception of God. And I'm afraid, Ollie, that some Christian preachers have taught their congregations that God is a bit, well, a bit like a cold Arctic light, pure, blinding brilliance, uh, a being who lives in unapproachable, in an unapproachable state. So when they talk of God, they're describing a being who's nothing more really than a list of properties. He's a maximally great being. He is pure love, pure wrath, pure wisdom. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. Now here's the thing, you can't get to know a list of properties. Instead, you're asked to stare at this pure, calm ocean of moral perfection, an infinite sea of divine bliss that's unruffled by the turmoil here down below on earth. And the thing that worries me about that view is that it is actually frighteningly close to the Hindu idea of the absolute impersonal. God reduces to an abstract idea, an infinite pull of moral perfection, and you can't get to know a God like that. So what do people do? Well, For some people, they take refuge in Jesus. At least he is warm and human and kind. He's a real person, unlike God in heaven. And so we end up in this ridiculous position that Christians say they love Jesus, but they don't love God. Now contrast that with all that we have learned here uh, in this conversation. The Trinitarian God is not isolated or needy or lonely. That's because God is no solitary ego. So at the very heart of reality, in the inner life of God, we find relationship, we find mutuality. From all eternity, the living God has lived in relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in perfect harmony, fully loved and fully known. Perhaps the most famous statement in the Bible about God uh, is in 1 John. God is love. Now that statement could never be made of a solitary ego, because love by its nature is relational. Richard Swinburne points out that love involves sharing. It's a giving to the other and a receiving from the other. But that's not enough, he says. Love also involves cooperating with another to benefit a third person. Now, that's really interesting because it means it's not all that surprising that love by its nature must express itself in a triunity of persons. Now, here is the breathtaking, uh, audacious claim made by Christianity. God lets us get to know him by drawing us into his inner life into the fellowship which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit already enjoy together. I find that an amazing, it was like a light bulb moment in my life. There's this theologian called Thomas Torrance, and he once said this, God draws us near to himself within the circle of knowing himself. Think of 1 John chapter 1 verse 3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. John uses exactly the same Greek word for fellowship that he uses when he's talking about us having table fellowship together. Then there's the, words, the Lord's words in John 14. 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And we shouldn't forget the Spirit of God either. A few verses before that quote, the Lord says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Now, do you see how astonishing that idea is? You get to sit down and enjoy table fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's a place of real intimacy and, and joy and peace and kindness. Now, we live in a world that is crying out for that sort of intimacy. Well, think of the intimacy within the Godhead. The Father really loves the Son. Sometimes he tore open the heavens and uh, declared to the world just how proud he was of him. And the Son really loves the Father. He loves him so much, he once said that pleasing the Father was like food to him. But now hear Jesus pray that we might be drawn into that intimate circle of love. Talking to his Father, he says, I and you and you in me and they in us. I can hardly get over that clause. It's the work of the Spirit, of course, who, to, to draw us there. He moves us from the depths of our being to join with the Son in crying out, Abba, Father. Now, I've talked for far too long there, Ollie, sorry, but if you, if you conceive of God as a, a set of properties, as an abstract idea of moral perfection, then you'll never get to know him. No one has ever had a relationship with an ocean of moral properties. But the God of the Bible isn't like that. When you enter into his presence, there is already a conversation going on. Before anything else existed, when God spoke, he was heard because he is tripersonal. So the doctrine of the Trinity is the way to knowing God. It's a really, it's a really profound and beautiful idea that we come to know God by being drawn into that circle of love that already exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a, that's a wonderful thing, an exciting thing. You also said that this doctrine of the Trinity is the way that we learn how to talk to God. What do you mean when you say that? Well, I've noticed uh, a trend uh, amongst young believers in the past decade. Well, there's quite a number of trends, but uh, let's leave coffee, <laughs> coffee snobbery out of it. Um, and the trend is this. They rarely these days refer to God as their father in their prayers. And they hardly ever use the term Lord in their prayers. Instead, they use the terms God and Jesus. So one of the things I would say to, to young Christians is make sure that your prayers are made to the God of Christianity and not to some generic deity. When our Lord taught us to pray, how did he teach us to pray? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Remember that you are loved by God, by your Father in heaven. Our Lord talks about prayer in John 16, and he says this, In that day you will ask in my name. And I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. And I think that truth is crucial for your generation. That little phrase, no, the Father himself loves you. Now think how that truth can transform your, your prayer life. I was reading a quote by Richard Dawkins, a good atheist that he is uh, this morning. He says that at bottom there is nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So at the very bottom of reality, he says there's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Well, Moses would disagree. In Deuteronomy 33, he says that underneath are the everlasting arms. So it's a good question to ask ourselves. Do I know the profound psychological, the existential security that comes from knowing that my Father in heaven is watching over me? It's such a lovely thought. I'm not cast adrift in the universe. I'm not at the mercy of forces too dumb even to know that I exist. 
I am going to be accused of sentimentality here, but I, I just love the fact that a little five-year-old girl can kneel by her bedside, clasp her little hands, and she can tell the eternal creator of the universe about the day she has had at school. She can talk to him about her desire to own a puppy. And she addresses the omniscient, omnipotent creator using a term no archangel would dare use. She calls him Father. Now, I'm not actually being sentimental there. That is a scriptural truth that your generation, Ollie, is in danger of losing. So I would urge all millennials and Generation Z Christians to be Trinitarian in their prayers. Don't talk to some generic God. Address one of the persons in the Trinity. And the pattern of Scripture is that we should address God the Father. That's how the Lord taught us to pray. So be conscious of the person you address. Don't thank the Father for dying for us on the cross. But do thank him for not sparing his son, but for giving him up for us all. Sometimes the Lord Jesus is addressed directly in prayer. Stephen does so in Acts uh, Acts 7. I can't think of any instances in Scripture where people address God the Holy Spirit directly. Uh, So maybe that scriptural pattern should inform how we pray. Now, please don't think I'm giving some prescriptive regulation about how to pray. This is about inviting people into the richness of fellowship with the triune God. So in prayer, this is how I visualize prayer uh, in my own head. Uh, We join in the fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the Son, who's already interceding for us before the Father, brings us to be with him before his Father. I think of the high priest going into the presence of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. And just as the Son takes us before the Father, there the Spirit helps us. The Holy Spirit supports us, the Son brings us, and the Father hears us with joy. With the Son, secure in Him, uh, enabled as we are by the Holy Spirit, we pray to our Father. Thank you, Jim. That was really, really helpful and um, I think has given us some great points of application when we come to think of the wonder and the splendor of the Trinity. If you've enjoyed this episode, do share it with your friends and family or post a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to hear from you.